Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Shank, nurse scientist and healthcare sustainability leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. Today's podcast is with Nancy Cheney, nurse, former mayor of Moscow, Idaho, scientist and activist. Nancy has been deeply involved in the One Health Initiative, linking animal health with human and environmental health. In this podcast, Nancy shares information about One Health, as well as her philosophy on caring for both humans and the environment. It is both an interesting and inspiring conversation. Nancy Cheney, it's so nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your nursing background to get started. Well, I began in nursing uh, way back in the the mid-1970s. When I first graduated, I was a neurosurgical nurse in Boise, Idaho, and subsequently did some work with home health and hospice and many years in internal medicine, uh, family practice, obstetrics and gynecology, and then finally in my career as a family caregiver. So very uh, well-rounded and a lot of experience in different aspects of nursing. How how did you get more? I I met you through the um, Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, Environmental um, Health Nursing Fellowship. How did you get involved and interested in environmental health? Well, I think because of my my graduate school um, training in environmental science, it was particularly interesting to me. Um, You know, I think we have a lot of overlap with human, animal, and environmental health. And so my focus has been this concept of one health that laces all of those aspects together. Um, You know, I think we we have uh, a lot of environmental stressors in in our um, existence. And so it's important to recognize that those sometimes have impacts, adverse impacts on uh, humans and animals. So was your environment, how, how long ago did you do your environmental sciences graduate work? I graduated in 2002 from the University of Idaho here in Moscow, Idaho. Uh-huh. And this, that followed, um, you know, my, my 15 months of end of life care with my mother and that I was so grateful for my nursing background because doing that required all of the nursing skills I had. And I think she had a very good quality of life at the end of her life. But when I came back home, um, my husband had just retired from his uh, work at uh, the College of Veterinary Medicine at Washington State University. We had started a small business in his specialty of veterinary ophthalmology. And I was just ready for a change. Uh, My wonderful employers in the obstetrics office had retained my job for me uh, while I was away you know, 300 miles away, they would call me up, they would send me care packages, they even would send me bonus checks, just wonderful people. And they held my job for me. But I I really did need to step back and see, you know, what else I, I might do for a while. And I thought I had invented the concept of environmental science. I didn't even know you could get a graduate degree in that field. I googled all the the things I was passionate about that included human health and environmental health, and up popped this new discipline that I didn't know about. 
And I went back to graduate school as a non-traditional student. And I think I was 45 years old or something at the time. And I just felt right at home. It was a, a very invigorating experience. And I, uh, I linked my background in nursing very strongly to my work in environmental science. That's so interesting. And what what um, what did you what caught your interest? I guess in those years of grad school, and then I want to ask you how that has evolved. But what were you interested in at first, and what did you study and focus on, for instance, for your thesis? I, well, I was looking at uh, human dimensions of ecosystem management mm-hmm. and looking at what uh, causes people to care about environmental health. Uh, interestingly enough, I used large scale sculpture to uh, in virtual. Uh, scenes to engage people emotionally in these sort of fringe environments. So if they're out on a recreational trail, they're cycling out uh, beyond the city limits or something, and they see this large sculptural piece, they're curious, they're emotionally engaged, whether they like the work of art or not. And then they arrive at that scene where one can more effectively deliver a message of environmental interpretation. So you might be talking about a a watershed. You might be talking about a remediation project or something like that. And so people can understand and care about it. And I, I used my background as a neurosurgical nurse to look at functional magnetic resonance imaging to, to indicate that people's brains were engaged more effectively in that way too, if the emotional part of the brain and the intellectual part of the brain were simultaneously stimulated. And did you find that to be the case? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and the messaging was retained for a longer period of time as well. So a longer period of time when it was combined with art or when uh what what were the differences well that's right it's um if a person were only to read an interpretive sign with just words on it um they might or might not even finish reading the thing it's uh if you're out on a recreational trail you know you're out there to get your your workout in or you're commuting to work or something like that but if you uh you see something that piques your curiosity such as a a piece of art might do uh, that I think that uh, uh, sort of causes people to pause. It draws their attention. It retains it long enough to deliver that message. And so if a person were only reading the verbiage, um, that such signage is not as effective. So I, I, a lot of my work in environmental science had to do with the, the human aspects of environmental responsibility and how people uh, care about something and then take action to keep it healthy and, and sustainable. So interesting. And are, did you come also from an art background? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I we have a lot of musicians in the family, and I, I played some instruments as a youngster, but uh, I, I do enjoy the arts and support the arts to the full ex- extent that I can. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So um, I can see already, and you've already touched on it, overlaps between nursing and this experience that you've had, um, you know, looking at pe- the, the way people interact with nature, the way people learn and remember uh, their natural, their experiences in nature. What would you say um, has caught your interest in the years since? How has 
your thinking and your work and your focus evolved uh, since your graduate work? Well, I had just graduated and I was uh, job hunting when I had my arm twisted pretty hard to run for a local elected office. <laughs> and I, I said no several times before finally deciding, gosh, how tough could it be? It's a two-year term on city council. I'll just try that and see what I think. And I was swept into that. And I subsequently ran uh, twice again for mayor and uh, successfully. And so I, I guess that evolution of my work in nursing and environmental science then was applied to the local level. And I, I continue to be engaged in uh, as an activist in trying to affect policies that uh, will influence human health and environmental health. So it has evolved to address things like uh, water quality in a basin where the, the groundwater is um, declining at a pretty good clip, even as the population is growing. And so, you know, looking at water quality and quantity to sustain the population, I look at it in terms of community development, you know, with if compact development patterns and mixed use development can lessen the requirement for fossil fuel consumption, that's a good thing all around, both for air quality and for a warming climate. Um, I, you know, we, I learned about things about wastewater treatment plants and water systems that I hadn't known before had I not gone into the political realm. And so it, all of those things were applied. Um, and I would say, too, as, an, as mayor, when someone would come into our city council chambers and they're just red in the face, shaking their fists, <clears throat> just tremendously distressed and perhaps screaming obscenities, I hearkened back to my days as a neuro nurse. And I realized that, you know, this person is out of their element. They're fearful of something, some substantial change to their lives. And maybe it's a, a loss of property rights or their children's inheritance or something significant. And they are not necessarily speaking the language of policymakers. And so just taking that time to allow a person to articulate their concerns, um, you know, hand them a box, box of Kleenex and be respectful about those things and patient as nurses always must be. Yeah, it's a great skill, isn't it? I should say. Well, that's so interesting. So, so then you've, you've learned about more about policy, about operations, it sounds like, about, you know, the um, actual running of city government. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand if I'm reading between the lines, you, you always have had with you this environmental perspective that health is built on a healthy environment, perhaps, or that the changes that we're seeing, uh, especially in the past 20 years, um, have significant ramifications for human health based on environment. That's is that right. I'm interpreting you you correctly? Yes, indeed. Yes, <laughs> yeah. indeed. And then you were able to bring some of that to the forefront in your leadership role. That's really exciting. Well, we did quite a few things in uh, Moscow City Hall. We uh, really launched the local foods movement here and urban agriculture. Uh, we, you know, got rid of peat uh, plastic bottles in our city facilities. Mm -hmm. We worked on the the water conservation and water reuse programs here. 
Uh, we did some things with non-motorized transportation and active lifestyles, um, green building programs. We started Earth Day awards, uh, set greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets. We worked on public transit um, and really recognized that so often poverty plays a role in a person's health. And this whole idea that, you know, your zip code can dictate your health, uh, that can be true even in small, relatively rural towns, such as ours here. And then with the advantage of having two universities within eight miles of each other, these land-grant institutions, wonderful resources to help us uh, address the needs of people in, in low-income low neighborhoods and really make sure that we have an equitable representation for the needs of, of health needs included in our community. Um, so I want to talk a bit about what you mentioned early on, which was, is One Health. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, now, One Health is not a, a new idea. I mean, it's been around for millennia. It's the idea that uh, humans, animals, and the environment are are linked together in a profound kind of way. And I first became involved with it probably back in 2010. Um, and it was, oh my, I was reading one of my husband's veterinary journals and there was an article in there about, uh, oh, I think there were sea otters in Monterey Bay, California, and they were dying and or um, becoming ill. And somebody finally trace that back to shellfish that were concentrating toxins that were being, you know, flushed down with eutrophication, the algal, toxic algal blooms were causing these shellfish to be toxic to the sea otters. And that, of course, has implications for human health as well. But so many times the sentinel species are, are the animals in our environments. So the article caught my attention and it didn't seem to focus so much on the environmental aspects of, of One Health. And so uh, my husband and I put our noggins together and we crafted a letter to the, the Journal of the American um, Veterinary Medical Association. And, and that was published. And I also reached out to the founders of the One Health Initiative um, via their website and I got a very nice email back and, and they said, what shall we do with this? And uh, since that time, they invited me to be on their advisory board. Um, I took the, the uh, concept to the National League of Cities where I was uh, uh, on the board of directors. And I said, let's have a resolution, uh, which I crafted and which was subsequently approved by the National League of Cities saying policymakers need to be acutely aware that these um, compartmentalized decisions have implications. Uh, so if you, you talk about your land use planning, if you're not considering the impacts on human health, you've missed something. Um, if, as we're seeing now with the, the situation with the coronavirus pandemic, um, being aware that you have to look outside your borders, you can't render decisions that are so simplistic as to ignore uh, the the peripheral fallout too. So One Health is this all-encompassing concept. And around the, the world, really, there are increasing numbers of institutions that are offering 
One Health um, certification right on through um, graduate programs. So you can get a certificate or you can get a, a credential, um, a graduate credential in One Health. And I think that will be really helpful to future medical practitioners and, um, and those, all of us in the world who can benefit from that integrated knowledge. Has it primarily been, or did it start with uh, veterinarians? Well, to be sure, there's been probably more comparative medicine practiced by veterinarians over the years. Uh, you know, there's so much pressure to to get medical practitioners, human medical practitioners out in the workforce, and it's so expensive to train them. And so I can appreciate that it's difficult to even consider adding additional um, requirements for the curriculum. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it can be fused in there relatively seamlessly, perhaps with simulated scenarios, you know, and that bring practitioners from veterinary medicine or from environmental science into the, the physician training programs or, or nursing training programs uh, to have us think more broadly. You know, when, when a patient comes into a clinic um, and they have, you know, some symptoms that you're trying to make sense of, oftentimes there's a question, have you traveled to some place? Have you been out in the woods? Have you been exposed to, uh, you know, water in, in a wilderness setting? Have you uh, eaten anything unusual? That sort of thing. Um, and, I, and I would say this is a little perhaps peripheral to your question, but one of the one example that I might use is from an organization called Terra Graphics, look, based right here in Moscow, Idaho. And year, in 2010, uh, they were invited by Doctors Without Borders to uh, to Nigeria, to Zamfara, and some migratory birds had kind of gone missing. They didn't show up at their expected time. And children that subsequently started falling ill and dying. And they had between four and 500 children die in this place. And people were trying to figure out what it was. They thought it was a contagion of some sort. And it ended up being lead contamination because of um, artisanal gold mining. Mm. And it was a, a cloistered Muslim compound. And so the women and the young children stayed within that compound while the men went out, collected this new source of ore to be able to extract gold. And they brought that back into the compound where the women were using their food mills to mm. to mill this ore. And the dust, of course, got everywhere. It was in their homes. It was in the compound. The children were eating it. And it, it was lead poisoning. And uh, this small group from Moscow, Idaho, was able to go into these homes and talk to the women with translators and explain why it was important to do this um, environmental remediation. And it was a, a big cooperative endeavor with the mining companies and with the, the government and with Doctors Without Borders, uh, with university researchers. All these people came together to make this happen. But there was an uncertainty about the cause of this until 
people connected environmental contamination with these missing birds. So the waterfowl were dying of lead contamination even before it was manifest in the people. And, and so that's, that's what One Health is and what it can do and why it's so important that these different discipli- disciplines are integrated in that way. Mm-hmm. You mentioned coronavirus. Is there, um, I, and I, it's, it's happening right now as, as we speak, and so this may not be clear yet, but what mm-hmm. is your understanding in terms of uh, any interactions between humans and animals on this or transmissions? Right. So I think the expectation is that the uh, the animal reservoir for coronavirus, the, the so-called COVID-19, this novel coronavirus, is uh, in bats from Wuhan, China, and a, a live animal market there. Uh, I don't know that they are certain that there's even an intermediate host for that, Uh, There's been some speculation about it, uh, but it seems to have come from bats, transmitted to people, and then was subsequently able to be passed from one person to another. So there are estimates that some 70% of infectious diseases are either zoonotic like this or vector-borne, such as, you know, something carried by an insect. Yes, and those are striking numbers. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we're we're all here on the same planet, and there are, you know, just untold numbers of especially small creatures, insects, um, vectors, you know, microbes. Some of the unraveling of our intact ecosystems um, makes it easier for um, some of the diseases to jump from one species to another, for instance, bats to humans. Do you know about that? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's not just coronavirus, but there are a number of zoonotic diseases and, and vector-borne illnesses, too, that uh, come because of changes to the, the uh, vegetation. You might see deforestation because uh, somebody is trying to uh, develop palm oil as an economic resource for the region or something like that, or there's going to be more dense uh, human development in an area. And so the habitat, the normal habitat for for wildlife and for insects is disrupted, and they then move into other areas. Similarly, you see with effects of climate change, as the, the weather warms, migratory patterns change, uh, periods of, of um, hibernation are shifted. Uh, the hatchlings of different kinds of insects, the, the hatching stages are altered. Uh, all these things are disrupted and they, they have impacts on human populations that are oftentimes encroaching in these other settings. So disease transmission between species is certainly uh, a bigger problem now than probably in any recent time before. Yeah, well, it's packing a punch right this minute. Mm-hmm. What what sort of solutions do you have, think of, or what, what do One Health experts think of? Well, uh, in some cases, you know, for example, uh, Washington State University, just across the border here in Pullman, Washington, it has the... Uh, 
uh, Paul G. Allen School for Global Animal Health. And some of the significant work they're doing is in Tanzania to eradicate rabies, uh, which is a terrible disease in emerging countries. And uh, to be able to treat the dogs in these areas protects the people from, from rabies. And, and uh, you know, you were talking about my nursing background. I remember when I worked on the Nero unit, one of our patients made uh, international news uh, by dying of rabies. Mm-hmm. A young woman who'd come in, uh, she'd been so enthused about having received a corneal transplant. Her, mm-hmm. her life was going well, and then she developed strange neurologic symptoms. And then, as it turned out, she had received a cornea uh, from a cadaver, the, a, a man who had died of an undiagnosed neurologic condition. Wow. So t- to have ever witnessed someone dying of rabies, that's not familiar to most of us here in the United States, mm-hmm. but it's a dreadful ordeal. And uh, of course, my husband as a veterinarian also had uh, realized the importance of rabies eradication. And so that's one of those zoonotic diseases where treating the animal population can make a huge difference in human health. Uh, Other places that may not be so practical, I mean, I think in the case of coronavirus, for example, trying to treat entire populations of bats, which are simply the reservoirs and not necessarily ill themselves, um, is just, is not a practical solution. But, um, you know, trying to uh, maintain habitat for some of these animals, uh, not having the the uh, wild animals in a in a live animal market where people are having physical contact with them. Uh, I think education is a big piece of it. So I think it depends on the particular circumstance and where in the world one lives. Uh, but something that we can all be cognizant of is that a healthy, sustainable environment is good for everything, you know, that if we um, decide that we're, we're going to disregard uh, wetlands, for example, in community development, uh, we've messed up the, the drainage system and we're going to create problems with flooding and um, undesirable proliferation of insect species. And if we decide we're going to eradicate bats, then we don't have the bats to eat the insects. And, you know, it's all, it's all wrapped up together as, as my folks always taught me when I was a little girl. And I think that's why I have such a passion for this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? And, um, and when we think about it, like when you pointed out, it's, it. I think of it as like ruptures to the fabric and then mm-hmm. things don't work, you know, don't work. <laughs> and that is harmful for, for all of us. Mm-hmm. And let, let's just visit a little bit more about climate change related to One Health. I, I think of climate change a lot, work on it a lot. And I think about it in terms of um, the downstream impacts to human health, the disruptions of our economy, the, the uh, change to species. But outside of vector-borne illness, I have not really thought about other zoonotic conditions uh, that might be related to climbing, uh, changing climate. You talked about migratory patterns. What, what, mm-hmm. else, what, else, what can you say about that or what other relationships do you know of? Well, I think if you uh, if you have animals that are, I don't know, maybe something like 
rattlesnakes or something like that. You know, as we see uh, the time they emerge is perhaps disrupted by human habitation in areas. And I don't know about the, the temperature of the air as they, they come out, but I think people have to be aware that we're seeing some of the animals come out earlier in the season. Um, we have um, uh, species that may go extinct, which has implications for the entire food chain. Um, and, and that's, you know, everybody sees the polar bears, I mean, that where they call charismatic megafauna. But if we have these huge, well-recognized animals uh, that suddenly, you know, can't live where they've lived for so, so many years, that, you know, centuries, these, they're, or more, um, they lose their, their ice flows, their, the glaciers are deteriorating, uh, they lose their water sources, uh, all of those kinds of things, that, that hits home to us. But when they're smaller animals that are not familiar to us, or they're smaller animals whose, whose habitats and food sources are adversely affected by climate change, uh, especially if they're elsewhere around the world, you know, some seemingly insignificant thing in a rainforest in South America, uh, we don't recognize the value of that. And I think if we could figure, if we could think more holistically about the interconnection of one small creature relative to the thing that eats it or the thing that has a, uh, a mutually beneficial relationship with this other creature, then we would have a better sense of the the uh, the web of life, the integration of all things. Certainly, climate change is a major piece of that because the animals are losing the places where they normally live, and some of them, many of them, are going extinct or will go extinct. Um, that's really nicely said, and it reminds me of the beginning of our conversation in terms of of if you you said if we could think more holistically, we would be less mm -hmm. inclined perhaps to. Um, you know, dismiss some of these these damages which are reflected in biodiversity loss, and so so back to your project and your environmental science graduate work of um, people being more impacted to ideas such as that through a meaningful encounter where of art or a beautiful location perhaps does that give you thoughts of, of ways that we could move these ideas, you know, in something as, as basic as nursing education, for instance, or in city government, as you've had experience with, or in the way we communicate or the way we, we participate in art ourselves? Well, I don't know that it's art unto itself. It's just anything that engages people emotionally to, to cause us to care about something enough to take care of it. So <clears throat> whether it's, um, you know, it's an influential teacher who is able to engage the students in a powerful way that you, you've all seen, we've all seen young children who just dote on their first or second grade teacher, but those same kinds of relationships can happen at the collegiate level and at the professional level where someone is so passionate about something and it's not just 
words on a page. They, they make it live. And so I think experiential education is very valuable in this, taking students out to a site or members of the public out to a site to see what this is about. Um, you know, on the if when the example of artwork that you used, uh, Moscow here has a uh, the first large scale piece of sculpture in the town is a, a piece called Helioterra, and it's made it's a rammed earth piece in the shape of a seed pod made from regionally sourced soils, and it's just it's a beautiful, interesting piece, and I. I remember hearing the artist, a fellow named Robert Horner, who's from Port Townsend, Washington, uh, speak about why he created that piece and how it would uh, reflect the rays of, of light at certain times of the year and the different colors as the soils that can produce different kinds of plant life here in what we call the Palouse country, rich agricultural ground. And just this sense of caring about this place and representing the sense of place in such a powerful and beautiful way um, causes us to think about that every time we walk or bike or drive past that particular sculpture. And so um, I think those are ways that, that people can become more connected to the, the land and the, its resources that support us and sustain us. Mm, that's really lovely. What would you say motivates you for this um, focus, I guess? What do you think motivates you? Well, I'm not actively practicing as a nurse right now, but I continue to be involved as an activist, and I'm still working with health-oriented uh, boards and philanthropies and, of course, with the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. Mm -hmm. So I remain motivated because... I care about people. I think I, I'm motivated for the same reasons I entered the field of nursing to begin with. Uh, that is to say that we, uh, we reinforce, I think, the goodness in people and, and caring about them every time we take an act of kindness towards someone or we take the time to listen to their concerns. Um, and I, I see this in the, the children who are enthused about their science projects. They would come into City Hall and they would present to us. Or I, I see them in the youth groups that are out there doing stream cleanups around here. And the idea that there are future generations coming on that, uh, for whom we have some responsibility. And I think, sadly, uh, policymaking of late at, at multiple levels of government has been kind of short-sighted or, or um, narrowly focused. And if we can think more holistically and engage each other as members of an ecosystem, I think we are more likely to sustain our species in a uh, healthful way. And so that's what keeps me inspired. That's really lovely. I, I want to touch on something that you, I've heard very clearly and strongly from you in two different directions in a way, and it's the idea of caring. And, mm -hmm. you know, in nursing, that's a, it's something we talk about a lot. We, there are theories of caring. We measure caring. We train ourselves to be authentically present in a caring way. And, 
And I've also heard you say that um, through experience that is meaningful, people can care more about their natural world and the, the, the world on which we um, rely. Do mm-hmm. you think of those as the, the same thing? Do, is it an extension of the same feeling? Do you, or do you distinguish at all? Caring for people and caring for the environment? Yeah. Is that your question? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they're definitely related to each other. Uh, my, my concern has been, um, you know, as a, around policymakers for years to see the focus on expediency or on the monetary bottom line. But if we lose sight of what connects us as beings, I think we have... Uh, lost some of the the spirit that keeps us enthused about taking care of the planet and each other. So uh, it's definitely woven together. And I I think this idea about compassion and patience and thinking of a whole person or a whole ecosystem and not just a a symptom or a body part or uh, some narrow piece of, of the environmental setting, uh, you know, is the holistic piece of caring for humans and caring for the environment resonates with me as well. Mm-hmm. And and for cities, it sounds like. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, that's that's really uh, beautifully said, and, and it resonates with me as well. That um, nursing, in a in a way, is such a, a interesting and privileged viewpoint. And I think it's the same for all health professions, but nurses are often so intimately involved immediately with with people and and what's going on with them. And also, I think um, our educational background lends us toward this experience of holism and whole holistic thinking that um, makes sometimes making some of these interpretations between viewpoints a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Well, and nurses are very trusted professionals. I think uh, for the last 17 years, nurses have been the top of the list in, in national polls about who's who's most trusted as, as compared to Congress, for example, which I think is in the single digits often. Uh, you know, so the idea that people trust nurses and when we uh, make an observation that, you know, children are affected by uh, lead paint being shed in substandard housing arrangements or that water quality is, uh, you know, we saw that with Flint, Michigan, for example, the, the lead being leached out of the, the wells in the pipes there. Um, when we make the observation that environmental circumstances are adversely affecting human health, people listen. And I think that was true for me as a policymaker, mm-hmm. uh, that people trusted me. They may not always agree with my political opinion, but they knew that I was being straight with them and that they could confide in me. I think that's something that's in, uh, kind of intuitive to the, the nurse-patient relationship as well. And, and so that, that element of trust, um, communication, patient listening skills, all of those things, um, I think, help lead to, and teamwork, for sure, nurses have to function as team members. Uh, that, that all yields, I think, better, more sustainable, more representative results. Yeah, here, here. 
Well, that's terrific, and it's a it's a good summary to end on. But is there anything else you'd like to add today to say to whoever might be listening, whether they're nurses or, or otherwise? Well, I, I would just say to try to, to consider when somebody is talking about, you know, the um, – uh, oh, you're, they're getting, you know, sick from eating a hamburger or something like that. Consider that this is part of this one health concept. You know, if you hear about West Nile virus or you hear about uh, avian influenza or um, uh, toxoplasmosis or something like that, remember that we are connected to other species on this planet too. And all of us are depending on the same environment to support us. So taking care of each other and then our surroundings uh, is is a a very fair and forward-thinking objective to do. So I would encourage people to just think more holistically and um, think about the ways they can become involved. Uh, I, I felt ill prepared to be an elected official when when I was first asked I said you know I'm not a political animal I I vote and I write letters to the editor that's the extent of it but when I when I consider it we we all can do something in that regard you don't have to run for elected office but we can be the example we can share it at our dinner tables and on our coffee shop conversations and we can write our letters to the editor or write opinion columns, something like that. Reach out to our policymakers, um, serve on volunteer boards, try to, to leverage the resources we have at hand and the knowledge we bring to the table uh, for the betterment of our communities and our planet. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Beth. It's my pleasure to join you. again to Nancy Cheney for sharing this fascinating conversation. Nancy is a model of a statement she made that nurses reinforce the good in people. This is heartening to me and I hope to you too. Thank you all for listening today. This and other episodes of the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast can be found at envirn.org. And please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.